You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Said a couple times, but I do want to say Happy Father's Day to all of the dads out there, and you know, stepdads, um, adopted dads, um, dads that, or men that have, have 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 adopted a fatherly role in someone's life. Y'all are great. All right, we we are we are here because we all had dads, quite literally, but <laughs> you know, spiritually as well. <laughs> Existentially, yes, as well. <laughs> so, okay, question for you dads. What are you looking forward to doing today? Is there anything that, like, you're just excited about? A nap. A nap. <laughs> that is, that's what I have right here in my notes. <laughs> I am looking forward to a nap as well. And I, and I call these, these naps that I like to take, they're just a Sunday afternoon thing, because, you know, uh, but I call them book naps, and, and that's where I lay down on the couch uh, with a book. Sometimes I intend to actually read. Sometimes I'm like, nope, this is, this is a lost cause. But I always start with a book, open it up, I'm laying there, I read like maybe a page, and then I have to read it again. I read it a third time, and then I'm done. And then I end up laying there, passed out for, well, as long as Char lets me sleep. So it's awesome. I, I absolutely love my Sunday afternoon book naps. And also, it's a great because I, I saw my father-in-law last night, so we celebrated with him. And today, my parents are coming down, and then my dad and I get to have an extended uh, father-son adventure as we're building a garage this next week. So, woot! <laughs> I hope that, pray for us. I hope that goes well. <laughs> Uh, so, okay, another question for you, all, all, all of us dads. Um, do your kids always listen to you? <laughs> Fail. <laughs> no. That, right? They don't. They, they gen, sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes they do. Some, like, we have good kids. I'm not going to lie. We do have good kids, but sometimes I'm sure that your kids do not listen the first time you say something. Right? You tell them to, to do whatever the task is, big or small, and they're like, and they, either they're you know, sitting there, they don't respond, or they're like, yes, dad, and then they just keep on sitting there. Right? That, that, that's, yeah, it happens to me occasionally as well, <laughs> and I need to repeat myself and maybe add a little bit of volume to get their attention again. But here's the thing. This is an interesting point about today's minor prophet, all right, we're going to be continuing in that series of minor prophets we actually have today and next week. And that is, that is it then. We're finished the 12 minor prophets. I think it's been a good journey. But today, the minor prophet, he, he stands alone in, in the whole of, of the, the, the 12 books of the minor prophets for one specific reason. And that is that the Israelites, get this, they actually, they actually listen to him. They listen to him. What? Like, Jeremiah and Isaiah did not listen. And they spent years trying to get their attention. Didn't listen. But Haggai, his name was Haggai. I think it would probably be easy to, to hail him from the street. Haggai! 
All right, so this lucky prophet, he was Haggai. That was his name. And at only 38 verses, it's a very short book in the Bible, easy to read in one sitting. He barely, he barely gets 15 minutes of fame in the whole scope of history, but yet, wow, this short book really shines very brightly in the canon of Scripture. All right, I'm going to keep on asking questions. It seems to be the, the thing to do today. A quiz, a simple quiz. Uh, back on Palm Sunday, do you remember Palm Sunday? It was a few weeks ago. All right, and I preached. Do you remember what, what prophet I preached on? This was like the very start of this minor prophet series. Does anybody remember what prophet I preached upon? <laughs> oh, <laughs> No, I did preach on Amos, yeah. I did preach about Jonah, but there was one before that as well. Zechariah, that's right. You were looking in your notes, weren't you? Yeah. <laughs> awesome, Rachel. I'm glad that you take notes. I preached about Zechariah. All right, and then do you remember, okay, this is another, I guess, maybe a question for Rachel because she has the, her notes loaded up there. <laughs> do you remember how I, I made a, or I, I I'm, put together a, a picture frame of four pieces to frame the, the minor prophets in our understanding. Do you guys, do you, does that ring a bell? No, it wasn't circles. It was, no, it was, it was four pieces of like, you know, I asked you to imagine a picture frame. Does, does, that ring, does anybody remember those things? We didn't talk about them every single time. Uh, when we talked about the minor prophets, but sometimes we, we brought these, these points up as a way to frame them. Okay, oh, that's okay. That's okay. It was a while back. Don't worry about it. All right, so th these four pieces of this picture frame were, uh, the first piece was these prophets were actual historical people. All right, they were in the context of a much bigger story. All right, the second was that minor prophet doesn't mean minor league prophet. Right? Just because they were small in, in, in size and length of, of book doesn't mean that they were minor league, somehow that God hadn't you know, bumped them up to the major league. Uh, number three was that the prophets, just in general, were how God spoke to his people at the time. All right? this, was like, this was, thus says the Lord. All right? When the prophets spoke, that was God's words, God's voice. And number four, the fourth piece of the picture frame, was that the, the major theme that undergirded the whole of prophecy in the Bible, in the Old Testament, was repent and return to the Lord. Repent and return to the Lord. And so I want to return to those four pieces today and make a frame for, for, for the book of Haggai. And... I, and then I want us, so we're going to go over that, four pieces, and then I, there's two points that I want us to ponder today uh, that came to the surface as I was studying and praying over this this last week. And so the first part of the frame is that Haggai was a real historical person, all right? And we can read about him, and what's really cool about him is that we can read about him in other books of the Bible, in specifically the book of Ezra, and that there's some fairly specific details and dates in the book of Haggai. And so we read in Haggai 1, verse 1. This is how the book is introduced. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, 
the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So that's a very accurate date, right? It was the, the second year of this King Darius, the sixth month, and the first day of the month. So Haggai was, a, he was an accurate record keeper, it seems. And we can work this out to be sometime in the month of August, what we would call August in the year 520 B.C., right? That's what it was. That's pretty interesting that we can like know down to the date, day of when it happened. And so to get a, to get a bigger picture of the world around of the prophet Haggai, we need to look at the book of Ezra, as I mentioned, because he is mentioned a couple times in the book of Ezra, and so we can gain um, historical context from the book. And so in Ezra chapter 5, uh, verses 1 and 2, this is what it says. Uh, now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, son of Iddo, they worked together, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Josadak, set out to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And with them were the prophets of God helping them. Interesting. So that's what was happening. What were the events leading up to these prophets? And that's a big question. That's a good question to ask. And we can we read the book of Ezra and we can start to even get a bigger picture of, of, of the history or the, the, the landscape that Haggai was preaching to. Uh, we know from Ezra and from other historical sources that King Cyrus of Persia had conquered the Babylonian Empire in 539 B.C., Right? If you remember, the Babylonians had taken the, the Israelites, the Jewish people, um, into exile. And they'd been there for, for a couple generations. And in 539, King Cyrus of Persia had conquered that empire. And so he kind of inherited all these exiles that were living in Babylon. And in 538 BC, the next year, um, King Cyrus allowed a portion of the Jews to return to Jerusalem. And so about 50,000 Jews set out and made the trek back to Jerusalem. And soon after this, this very joyous pilgrimage, can you imagine like returning to your homeland after you'd been forcibly taken away? It would be a very happy time for these Jewish people. The Jews rebuilt an altar to worship God and started offering sacrifices again. So this was a big thing. This was a big deal. And Ezra 3 verse 8 tells us that two years after they had arrived back in Jerusalem, so about 536 BC, Zerubbabel and Joshua, these two men mentioned in Haggai 1, made a start in the rebuilding process by laying the foundation of the temple of God. Remember, the temple of God had gotten destroyed when the people were led away in exile. And so it had been laid in, laying in ruins. So they come back and they start to rebuild. It's very exciting. This is a big deal. And we'll talk about it in a little bit, but the temple of God, the reason that this was a big deal was the temple of God was, was the presence of God amongst the people in Jerusalem. And so they worked on the foundations. That's a good place to start. But it seems that they didn't get very far in their work. 
because they attracted the attention of the people who were already living in the land. All right? the, the land wasn't just sitting barren and empty when the Jewish people came back. There was people that still lived there. There was people that, you know, when the, the, when the Jewish people had left to go into exile, there's people that were left there, and there was also people that probably saw a very good opportunity to move in and take over these farms that had just been left. And so there's people still living in there and building the temple. Obviously, that was a lot, you know, a lot of noise and there was lots of excitement about it. And so these people that still lived in the land, or I guess more accurately, if we want to use the word that's in Ezra 4 verse 1, they were adversaries of the Jews. They, they began to come and they began to be like, hey, what, what, what's going on here? And these people were the ones, yes, that had lived in Jerusalem and around the area throughout the time of the Jewish exile. And so I want to read to you in Ezra 4, verses 1 to 5, this is, this is what happened. This is the interaction that, that uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people of God had with these, these other people who were living there. When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the families, and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the day, days of King Esarhaddon of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families in Israel said to them, You shall have no part with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build this house to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus of Persia has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. And they bribed officials to frustrate their plans throughout the reign of King Cyrus of Persia until the reign of King Darius of Persia. And so as a side note, the reason that Zerubbabel and Joshua, or Jeshua, as it says in Ezra, didn't want help from these people is is that they were not true followers of Yahweh. They they might have worshipped him, as it says they did, uh, but they had not done it properly because there there was no priesthood to assist them in, in proper right sacrifices. Uh, they, and they had probably been worshiping other gods at the same time as well. And so they were worshiping Yahweh, yes, but they were also worshiping, you know, Baal and, and the Asherah poles and, and you, know, doing, you know, worshiping other idols and false gods as well. And so we need to remember that God continually calls his people to be set apart, to be set apart, to be holy and worship him only. Not to mix them in with other gods. Zerubbabel and Joshua did what was right by refusing this help. Because they didn't want the returning exiles to immediately fall into bad habits. And to be mixing and and, and working side by side with these people that probably would very easily lead them away into idolatry. And so sadly, as it says in, in Ezra 5 there, or Ezra 4, sorry, this event led these adversaries to truly mess up the plans that the exiles were trying to put into action. We read that, they, that the, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah. And through political intrigue and somehow bribing officials and writing letters that were not terribly true, uh, they, they frustrated the plans to rebuild the temple. 
And through these actions, the temple rebuilding project was effectively halted for 16 years. That's what we read in Ezra. 16 years, the temple all of a sudden, with a, with a foundation that was ready to go, all of a sudden the, the construction site fell silent. And so in these 16 years, the Jewish people, you know, they still worked on building their own houses and working at building up their own businesses and starting farming again and all this. They were trying to restore the land to what, what they used to live in back before the exile. And all the while, the temple up on the hill, up on Mount Zion, was very much unfinished. And this, this is the moment after 16 years of inactivity, this is when Haggai hears God's word. Haggai was one of the the people that had returned, and so he had been here for 16 years, and I'm not sure exactly, we don't know what happened before this, but then all of a sudden God chose this day to to speak to Haggai. And so in the second year of King Darius, after 16 years of inactivity, something begins to happen. And so remember, Haggai is, yes, he's a minor prophet because he has a short book, but that doesn't mean that he is a minor league prophet. His message was a very major turning point in this story. So this is what it says in Haggai 1, 2-6, and it tells us a lot about the situation that Haggai was speaking into. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this is the message to God, of God to the people. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Hmm. Then the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai saying, Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lays in ruins? Remember, the people had lived in the land for 18 years. They would have had time to build nice houses for themselves. right? Very nicely paneled houses. Now therefore, this thus says the Lord of hosts, consider how you have fared. And these next words give us an idea of how the 18 years had gone by in regards to the well-being of the people. Remember, two years of before they started the temple and then 16 years of inactivity. This is what God says. You have sown much, but harvested little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And you that earn wages... Earn wages to put them into a bag with holes. It's not a very good bank account if it's leaking out the bottom. These people had been trying, trying very hard to make a life for themselves, but it, it hasn't worked out very well. Haggai asks them to consider how you have fared. Look at your life. Take a look at what's going on in your life around you. How's that working out for you? And Haggai and the people, they they know the answer. It's, It's not working out very well. And this, this is where God's power is shown through the words of Haggai. In verses 12 to 15, it tells the response 
of the people to this simple message. The leaders obeyed the voice of the Lord, and the people followed suit. God, it says, stirred up the spirit of the leaders and the people, and they came and they started work again on the house of the Lord on the 24th day of the sixth month. So you do the math. 23 days after God's word came through Haggai, and the people of God responded in obedience and started working on the temple. Wow, 23 days. That's major league, right? As I mentioned, Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and like most of the other prophets spent years preaching and prophesying without the people really responding that well. And yet, with this simple message to consider how you have fared, Haggai's message stirs the hearts of the people and they get right to work. The second piece of the picture frame was that Haggai was, was not just a minor league prophet. And the third piece is that this is, this is how God spoke to his people. And we read in Ezra that Haggai and Zechariah, the two prophets, they worked together prophesying and encouraging and helping the people rebuild the temple. And God's Spirit accompanied them to make their message effective. The people had been stuck for the last 16 years, continually believing the lie that told them that it was not yet time. It's not time yet to build the temple. But yet Haggai asks them, well, why is it right for you over here to to build your house and live in a very nicely appointed house while the house of God up on the hill there just lies in ruins? Why is it okay for you to spend your time and your money and your energy on building a house and a life that, well, truly is kind of selfish in nature while ignoring the huge elephant in Jerusalem, which was the unfinished temple the unfinished house of God. And you might be asking yourself here, like, what, what's the big deal with building a temple? All right, can't we worship God anywhere? And the answer for us is yes. But here's, here's the thing. This is why God had this, this big building project in, in mind in Haggai. And there's a clue to the answer of, of why is this so important in Haggai 2, 4, and 5. And this is what it says, Yet now take courage, O Zerubbabel. Take courage, O Joshua. Take courage, all you people of the land, says the Lord. Work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the promise that I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit abides among you. Do not fear. Hmm. What this tells us is that God is with his people. And he wants to dwell with his people. According to this promise that he made them as they were leaving Egypt. So if you look back, well, what's this promise? If you look back to Exodus 29, 45 to 46, this is what you'll find. This is what God promises to his people. I will dwell among the Israelites and I will be their God. 
And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And so in the Old Testament times, God dwelt with his people in a physical house. First, it was in the portable tabernacle that Moses instructed the people to build in the desert. And then in the temple that Solomon built. God's temple was the physical space where God's presence was. Where God's people went to be in the presence of God. God commanded his people to worship him rightly by going to the temple and by offering him right sacrifices to him at the altar there. And so God's passion in the time of Haggai was to once again have a place to dwell among his people. God wanted a place that his people could come to and be in his presence. And God said through Haggai, come, come and work on my house, for I am with you. I want to be honored and take pleasure in the house that you build for me. He wants to be with his people. And so the fourth piece of the picture frame is that, that God is consistently and continually calling his people to repent and to return to the Lord. And so once again, God is calling his people through Haggai's voice to repent of their selfishness and return to God's presence, return to God's house so that they can worship him rightly once again. Remember, the people had been telling themselves that ah, it's, not, it's not time. It's not time yet to return to God. It wasn't yet time to rebuild the temple, they said. You know, maybe, maybe in a couple years, maybe in a few years, once, once this olive grove gets producing again, you know, maybe once we have a few really good harvests, uh, maybe, maybe once my, my herd of sheep really takes off, then, then we can start focusing on God. Then I can start focusing on God. And we'll have time. But the thing is that they had gotten discouraged and had big setbacks. You know, remember 16 years before, and they just failed to start again. They'd been telling themselves that it wasn't time it wasn't time to do this yet for 16 whole years. But now Haggai comes and tells them, yes, it's time. It is time to get going. It is time for them, as it says in Haggai 1.8, to go up to the hills and bring wood to build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. And once again, I'm drawn back to the, the one main point that sets Haggai apart from the rest of the prophets, that, that the people actually listen to God and to the messenger Haggai, and they organize themselves. They, they get themselves together, and they start working on the temple once again. Wow. And, and this isn't just a, a short burst of, of energetic obedience either that, that fizzles out once again. The work on the temple continues for more than four years. 
All right? It's not just like a, you know, how we, you know, we can build a house in, in a couple months or whatever. You know, back then, it was, it was very physically intense labor to build a building, and especially a big temple. And so they worked on it for four years. In Ezra 6, it tells us that the temple of God was completed in the sixth year of King Darius. And it took the people four years to complete the temple. But it was because of Haggai and Zechariah that this work was started and then completed. So with this amazing response to God's call in our minds, I, wanna, I want us to ponder, the, ponder two phrases that we find in Haggai that he puts forward in his message. And the first is this. Consider how you have fared. Or perhaps, let's put it differently. It, it could be, set your hearts on the course of your life. Or ponder the journey that you have been on and, and where is it taking you? Consider how you have fared. That's a big question. And Haggai asked the people to look at the results of their effort. They had worked hard in their fields, but it hadn't amounted to much. They would eat, eat food, but it never really was enough food. They would put on their clothes, but they weren't really warm enough. And to top it off, the, the people would earn wages, but it would just go into a bag with holes in it. And when they went to their storage rooms, they never had quite as much as they thought they did. And so th this is a, a question that, that requires serious thought and takes time to answer and to, to figure out. And I ask it to you today. Consider how you have fared. How's your life going? Have you recently taken the time to consider how things are going in your life? How's your bank account? How's your job? How's your relationship with your friends or with your spouse or with your kids or your parents? It seems that according to Haggai, there, there's this direct correlation between these things and, and how your relationship with God is going. If your life isn't going very well, or if aspects of your life aren't the way that you would hope them to be, consider. Consider if you've been telling God, either intentionally or unintentionally, now is not the time for us. I've got other things to deal with. The temple foundation had been built 16 years previously. But the construction site had been empty and quiet since then. Consider your life. Have you laid a foundation for God's presence in your life and then abandoned it? If even the, the notion of having a moment of self-reflection scares you because of what you might find 
It might help to find a good friend to talk it through together. It might help to write it down. To ask yourself, well, how's it going? What's, what's not going well? What is going well? You know, to consider the decisions that you've made and, and why you've made them and where they're leading you and, you know, ask yourself, what kind of things are you finding as you reflect? And I'm thankful. I'm thankful that, that after these moments of, of truly vulnerable self-reflection, God does give us a path forward. He doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't leave us hanging. God is there to encourage us. And as it says in Haggai 1, 7 and 8, once again, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider how you have fared. Haggai says that to the people. I'm saying that to you. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. This leads to the second idea that I want us to ponder today. After we've taken consideration into how we have fared, the response, according to Haggai, is to go and get to work building the house of God so that God may take pleasure in it and be honored. If this sounds like a daunting task, that God just wants us to get to work somehow trying to to fix our relationship with him, I want to reassure you with with the second phrase that I want us to ponder this morning. It's found in the midst of, of Haggai 2, 4, and 5, where it says, Yet now take courage, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Take courage, all you people of the land, says the Lord. Work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the promise that I made you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit abides among you. Do not fear. Did you catch that? Work, For I am with you, says the Lord. Do hard things, because God is with you. So here's the deal. As people, us, who live after Jesus ascended into heaven and then sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, the work that we do is not physically building a temple anymore. Because according to 2 Corinthians 6, we are the temple of the living God. So how do we translate this idea of of work, for I am with you, into our day? And I believe there's a hint, and if we take it to heart and if we listen carefully, in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So listen carefully to this. Therefore, my beloved, this is Paul writing to his I think it might have been one of his favorite churches because he was pretty happy in this letter. It's not like those Corinthians. I'm just kidding. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, 
enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What does this mean? And working out your own salvation is the action of, of, of seeking and, and striving to be holy. Seeking the benefits and the blessings of the Christian life. Actively avoiding sin and walking away from temptation when it arises. Well, how do we do this? It's not just by our own strength, right? No, no, it's because God is at work in us. It's because God is at work within us. It's this, this amazing creative partnership with God that God has with us. He works within us. And he gives us the power to resolve and to be active in the work of our salvation. The seven of us going to Poland originally signed up to go on this trip earlier this year. And we signed up before we actually knew what we were going to be going to do. And the reason we did this was because we wanted to follow God wherever he takes us, and we were, I believe, striving to be holy. And I believe that the only reason we actually wanted to strive to follow God is because God had given us that desire and the ability to work at our walk with God. It's in God's strength and grace that we have the ability to be strong and gracious. And so Paul is echoing Haggai when he says these words in Philippians. Work at building your intimacy with God. Do the hard work. Go up and become a lumberjack. For God is working in you to provide you with what you need to do your work. And so I'd love to pray with you about this. It would bring me great joy to continue to encourage you to keep going. <laughs> and remember, the Jews worked on the temple for four years before it was finished. It wasn't an easy task. And we, we continue to work out our salvation by God's strength for the rest of our lives. We need encouragement. We need to be reminded that God is with us as we work. And I can't promise you that this work is going to be easy. All right, The Jews had to become lumberjacks and bring lumber down from the hills. That's probably not very easy work. They had to become masons and find and shape stones and put them into place to build this temple. They worked on the temple of God for four years before it was completed. And for us, this work might be hard, but we can do it together. We are doing it together. The simple fact that we come and gather on Sunday mornings, this isn't the be-all and end-all of our Christian life, but this definitely is encouraging for each other. We can encourage one another and by God's strength, we can do hard things. And I want to encourage all of you. We are the church. We are the dwelling place of the living God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, who the Holy Spirit dwells within us 
to empower us to keep going. So work, for I am with you. The book of Haggai, as we wrap up here, is an incredibly encouraging reminder to me that God stirs up people's hearts so that they can do great things. So please, consider how you have fared. And then get to work, for God is with you. Mm -hmm.